0: The God of the Bible is, of course, a unique God. He's different than the other so-called gods of the world and of world religions. And one of the main ways he's different is that he is gracious. It's not a subtle point. In fact, when you consider the gods of the ancient Near East or of the Roman Empire, when you think of Aphrodite or Apollo or uh, Hermes, Zeus, etc., they all are marked by mood swings. They're marked by anger. They're marked by this jealousy that boils out into erratic behavior. They're presented as gods who need to be wrangled or manipulated in order to get them to respond. They are definitely not presented as gracious, eager to hear, eager to act, eager to meet their people's needs. That's true not just in the the Greco-Roman Empire, it's true in the ancient Near East, the cultures that were around Israel, their gods were uh, depicted in such a way that if you didn't sacrifice to them in the right way at the right time, they would be angry and they would cause, you know, hail to fall on you and and drought to come. And so you needed to give them the right sacrifices in order to appease them. Even in the world today, many religions are structured such that God is presented unwilling to act unless he's manipulated. You have the concept of intercessors or people you have to go through in order to bend God's ear. You hear it presented like there's no way God would answer your prayer. Who do you think you are? But you pray to these other people and you bend their ear and then they will convince God to listen to to you. He wouldn't listen to you, but these other people he might listen to, so go to them. And some Cultures, especially Hindu cultures in the world, it's nobody would help the poor because the idea is that if you help the poor, you're hurting their, their, what their life will be like in the next life. They're supposed to suffer in this life in order to prepare them for a better life next time. And so that's obviously an expression of the worldview that comes from their concept of their gods. Their gods are not willing to help those who are impoverished. Their gods are not willing to help those who are in, in need, or who are suffering their gods close their hearts towards them if they're even aware of them at all. In contrast to all of that, you have the God of the Bible who is gracious. He's eager to hear, he's quick to act. He sees the suffering of his people and he turns his ear and his his heart and his affections towards them. That's the God of the Bible. In fact, when you first encounter Moses and God first reveals himself to Moses, Moses who wrote the first 5 books of the Bible, God sets him aside for ministry and Moses asks God, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them Yahweh sent you. Yahweh, he's a God it is God speaking. Yahweh, he's a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Notice that God's own self-disclosure to Moses. The way God introduces himself to the one who would write the first 5 books of the Bible is a God who is gracious. In fact, the most common word in the Old Testament used to describe God is compassionate. The second is gracious. There are dozens of passages in the Bible that describe God as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. In fact, at the end of their wilderness wanderings, Exodus 33, God speaks to Moses and says, I'm Yahweh, I will be compassionate. To whom I will show compassion. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That's Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. That, of course, is the verse that Paul picks up on in the New Testament. and says the Lord will be gracious to whom he'll be gracious. He'll show compassion to whom he wants to show compassion. Uh, the very concept of election in Romans 9 is rooted in the concept that God is by nature gracious towards us. Later on, next chapter, Exodus 34 verse 6, when God is going to hide himself from Israel, he tells Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, that even in God's anger you're supposed to take away from that, that he's still compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. Unlike the other gods of the world, that grace, his graciousness, that concept of grace, it is the foundation for all of God's interactions with us. Every interaction between God and man is rooted in the gracious nature of God, that he's willing to condescend to us, that he's willing to come to us, that he's willing to listen and answer our prayers. He's willing to meet our needs. 2 Kings 13 is a classic picture of that, which we will see this morning. And I know we haven't been in 2 Kings in the morning services since chapter 5, and so a lot has happened since then. So to bring you up to speed, let me just give you the kind of where we're at right now in 2 Kings. The spoiler alert here is bad things are about to happen to bad people. (laughs) Israel here in the book of 2 Kings are the, the bad guys. Israel is the, the ones who are evil. You're often prone to read the Bible in terms of good versus bad, which is not a very good way to read the Bible. But if you do read it that way, understand that in the book of 2 Kings, God is good, Israel is bad. Israel is not the good guys. God is the good guy. Israel are the bad guys. Are we all on board with that? Israel is wickedly sinful. If there was a contest in the world to see which nation could anger God the most, Israel would win hands down. Take Babylon, Syria, Egypt, and the entire Asian continent together, and they did not offend God as much as Israel was doing right here in the book of Second Kings. And so God is going to respond to their their disobedience and their idol worship by punishing them. Now in the wilderness wanderings, God punished Israel by, by Plagues and by opening up a hole in the ground and by sending serpents in their midst. God was doing it himself, though. He wanted the nations of the world to see that God could rescue Israel and also discipline Israel himself. But now that Israel is in the promised land, God is not going to punish them himself. He's going to use means. He's going to raise up other nations to come because now God's not sending a message to the other nations. He's sending a message to Israel who thinks they're so different. Israel who says, we're God's covenant people. We can act how we want. We can worship how we want to worship and who we want to worship. And God's not going to do anything to us because he promised us this land. And so God says, OK, Syrians, interstage left. <laughs> Teach Israel a lesson. And so the cycle in the book of Second Kings is that Israel rebels against God by worshiping idols. God raises up the Syrians to send them to attack Israel and plunder them. Israel panics calls out to God for rescue so God causes the Syrians to lose. This cycle is repeated over and over again. It's very straightforward for everybody except the Syrians. They're hopelessly confused by this. (laughs) God says go beat Israel. They're beating Israel and God causes them to lose. That's the nature of what's going on here. Now in order to get the full effect of 2 Kings 13, you have to have the working concept of what God's grace is. This is how I would define God's grace. The essence of grace is undeserved favor from God. Undeserved favor that God shows. It's undeserved favor from God. and seen in particular in how he rescues you from God. Now the first part of this little definition is this undeserved favor. You don't deserve grace. You don't merit grace. You don't work for grace. Grace is given to you. And by that sense, it's our whole relationship with God is founded in grace. We can't earn it, we can't obtain it except by grace. That's what Paul writes in Romans 5, that our relationship with God is founded or rooted in grace. We stand in grace. We stand in grace. And it's grace from God, as I mentioned. I mean, just kind things that happen in in this world. You can say, oh, that's gracious of you, but biblical grace is from God in particular. Right now we're in a government shutdown, right? So some of you are not going to be able to go to work tomorrow or this week. You have to take however much time off the government shutdown. You don't get to go to work. At the end of the shutdown, you will most likely be paid retroactively for all the time you didn't work. Isn't that gracious? (laughs) See, I'm teaching you how to perceive the shutdown with a, a biblical worldview here. Well, I guess it's not entirely biblical grace, because biblical grace is from the Lord. And I'm not saying that the government shutdown is from the Lord. (laughs) That would be the difference. But biblical grace is where God acts on you in a way that is different than what you deserve. Ephesians 1 describes God as initiating our salvation because of grace. Titus 2 describes the appearance of Jesus Christ as the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. God gives grace, the Bible says, to the humble, but he humbles the proud. He's opposed to the proud. Jesus appears on the scene in John chapter 1, and he's described as being full of grace and truth. And that's because he's God in human flesh. God is full of grace, and so Jesus would obviously be marked by grace grace is the energy that keeps christians alive it's what we eat it's what nourishes us it's what causes us to grow the grace of the lord and grace as i mentioned on the screen here it's from god that word preposition can be that word that preposition from in english can be confusing here it's a preposition a genitive of source in other words grace comes from god he's the source of grace grace comes from him to us food comes from the kitchen Grace comes from God. That's the way that first from works there. But it's the second from God that's important this morning. Not only is grace from God, but grace is most clearly seen when you recognize that it's also saving you from God. In other words, God is the source and he's the indirect object, so to speak. He's the one that's sending grace, but the grace is sent in order order to rescue you from himself. In salvation, it works this way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all manner of ungodliness. So you are under God's wrath. Now the grace of God comes and rescues you from God's wrath. Grace rescues you from God Himself. That's why Second Kings 13 is such a critical chapter, because in this chapter, you're going to see four different examples of how grace is given to rescue people from God's own wrath, from God's own wrath. That'll be your outline and this morning. This morning, we'll see how God reveals grace to his people how God reveals grace to his people. If you're here this morning and you're going through a trial and you don't see God's grace in your life, I hope this message is encouraging to you. If someone were to come up to and ask you this morning, hey, how do you see God's grace in your life right now? And you would stumble for an answer. I'm gonna give you four different answers this morning to, to hang your hat on, four different ways, means by which God is giving out grace this morning so that you can say, I see God's grace in boom, 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 these four areas of your life. First, God gives grace through prayer. Grace comes through prayer. Any concept of prayer, of course, is founded on God's grace. I mean, we are beggars when we're reaching out to God, and so any response from God is obviously going to be gracious, and that's where this chapter begins. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, that's, that's uh, Judah's king this is just a timestamp. stamp he's not part of the story it's just a way of putting you in the timeline where this is Jehoahaz the son of Jehu began to reign over Israel and Samaria and he reigned 17 years now Jehu is the main figure in second kings he towers over the whole book Elisha was at the beginning of the book, but he's faded from the scene. The book isn't called Prophets, it's called Kings. And Solomon could be the main king in in 1 Kings, perhaps, or Ahab. But 2 Kings, the the main king is Jehu. Jehu was the king of Israel in a a nation that didn't love God, though nobody would serve God. Jehu was the one who stood up and was used by God. In a nation that worshipped cows, Jehu was the one that slaughtered the cow worshippers. He was the one that lent his hand to the Lord. At the end of his life, God told Jehu that because of your faithfulness, you will have four descendants that will reign on the throne after you. That's good news and it's bad news. (laughs) It's good news because it means four of his descendants will reign on the throne. But the bad news is is it kind of caps his line. It's not going to go forever. It's not the covenant with David where you will have a descendant reigning on the throne forever. Jehu gets four generations and that's because his descendants are going to be evil. They're going to be idol worshipers, and we're going to meet one of them right now. This one, Jehu Ahaz, named sort of after his dad. His dad is kind of the prefix to his name. Will reign 17 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He followed the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he was Israel's first king. After Israel and, and Judah split from each other, Jeroboam was the first king. If you remember him, he is the one that built the cows and told Israel to worship the cow gods. That's Jeroboam. The author here is trying to describe how evil Jehu's son is, and the only analogy he can come up with is he's like that awful first king, the wicked cow-worshipping one. That's what he was like. And, of course, in the middle of verse 2, he made Israel to sin. He didn't depart from those ways. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. That image, remember, God is not excessive in his anger. His anger here is provoked. It's being kindled is the image here, roused up. And he gave them, God gave them continually into the hand of Hazael king of Syria and into the hand of ben hadad the son of Hazael. This is the normal cycle. Israel is rebelling, they're worshiping cows. And so God raises up the Syrians to attack them. And the Syrians are winning. But then Jehoaz sought the favor of Yahweh, verse says, verse 4 says. And that's somewhat unexpected. Remember, he's a pagan cow-worshiping king. And now he's in desperate need of rescue. And listen, the cows aren't showing up to help. All his prayers to the cow idols aren't working anything. It's not a very intimidating foe in battle either, is it? Watch out or I'll release my cows. And so he's in a time of desperation here. And so he tries. It's like a last ditch attempt. I know. Let me try praying to Yahweh. Maybe that will work. Maybe that will work. That's his attitude here. And so he calls out to Yahweh. And the last part of verse 4 is surprising. Yahweh listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. Yahweh listens to his prayer. Oftentimes we come across people in the world that we think, there's no way God would answer that person's prayer. Look at how evil they are. God wouldn't hear his prayer. But listen, if God didn't hear evil people's prayers, he wouldn't hear any prayers. God hears the prayers even of the wicked, even of the wicked. But the key is this, once they realize their desperate situation. This prayer here, this is not the refined prayer of a practiced man. This is not the overflow of a normal one-hour daily quiet time here. This is the prayer of a desperate man. It's not the exalted prayer of the high priest for his people. This is the prayer of a, of a tax collector beating his breast saying, Lord, please have mercy on us. This is a prayer of last resort, of desperate urgency in a situation where he has no hope but to try turning to God. The real question with this kind of prayer is will God respond? And the answer here, of course, is yes. God does respond. Look at verse five. Therefore, Yahweh gave Israel a savior so they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their land and their homes as formerly. In other words, they went back to what life was like before the Syrians started attacking. All is well because their king prayed. What a lesson this is for us. It teaches you that God is a compassionate and gracious God who delights in answering prayers. He answers the prayers of the rich when they stop trusting in their wealth. He answers the prayers of the powerful when they stop trusting in their power. He answers the prayers of the needy when they realize that their need is Him. He answers even the prayers of the self-righteous when they turn from their own self-righteousness. He answers the prayers of the broken when they realize that their need, their healer is the Lord. If you're here this morning and you feel like the Lord isn't answering your prayers, ask yourself what you're trusting in. Are you the rich trusting in your money? Cease and trust in the Lord instead. If this pagan king could stop trusting in his idols... And instead, turn to the Lord, and the Lord would hear his prayer, then obviously there is hope for us. This shows us that because of God's grace, he's ready to give us more than we will ask, if only we'll ask for more. It's a window into the gracious character of God. God's answer, though, does not produce repentance in their hearts. Their desperation is not the same thing as conversion. Verse 6, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And also the Asherah who remained in Samaria, those are those idol poles, those sexual fertility poles, phallic symbols that they would build on the high places and worship God in deviant ways there. They were around. I mean, that's the nature of this nation right now. Cow idols, Asherah's poles, but their king cries to God, and God hears and answers Israel at this time is decimated. Look at verse 7. There was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots, 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria destroyed them, made them like the dust at threshing. Their king doesn't have an army anymore, but he has a Lord that will hear prayers. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all he did in his might, aren't they written in the book of Chronicles, Kings of Judah? Our kings of Israel, that's a, a, not the book of Chronicles of the Bible, that's a secular book, an extra-biblical book. Not this one. So Jehoaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash's son reigned in his place. The lesson here for us, if you want to experience God's grace, even if you're desperate, even if you seem so distant from God, if you want to experience God's grace, pray, pray. And the Lord reveals his grace. He gives his grace often through the channel of prayers. Here, it's sad that they don't convert. In the wake of Yahweh's unexpected grace, you find really inexplicable ingratitude from his people. God's grace didn't soften their hearts, but hardened their hearts. And so the Syrians are going to come back, and they're going to decimate them again, but you'll see another channel of God's grace. Second, you'll see that God's grace comes through the prophets. It comes through prayer, and it comes through prophets. And here's a way to make this more of a New Testament principle. It doesn't just come through prophets. It comes through God's word. The prophets in the Old Testament brought the word of God. So the New Testament way that you would experience this is through reading God's word, trusting God's word. In other words, pr- grace comes through you praying to God and you receiving through his word. And the Old Testament, the images it comes through praying from God, praying to God and listening to his prophets. Verse 10. In the thirty-seventh year of Joash King of Judah, that's a that timestamp again. Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned sixteen years. So this is the second descendant from Jehu, his grandson. He also did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He didn't depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. The rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, aren't they written in the book of Chronicles, kings of Judah, or kings of Israel? I love that phrase right there because it says this. To translate that verse into more modern English, he's saying, this king was a noble warrior. He did amazing things in the battlefield, amazing things in the battlefield. You don't need to know about them because he didn't love the Lord, though. So let's move on. (laughs) I wish our history books were written like that. I would have majored in history, for sure. (laughs) Moving on, Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. Notice how wicked Joash is. See what he named his son? Jeroboam. He named his son after Israel's worst cow-worshipping king. That's the legacy he's living and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. But now we're going to go back in time a little bit. We're going to zoom in on one event in Joash's life. An amazing story, really. It's about Elisha, verse 14. Elisha was the prophet of Israel at the beginning of 2 Kings. Elisha is very different from Elijah. Elijah was the prophet who opposed kings. He's in 1 Kings, Elijah. Elijah made his ministry going nose to nose with King Ahab, toe to toe with the kings. Elisha did not like his interaction with the kings. He avoided the kings. Elisha was more comfortable in the military. Elisha was a warrior. He liked fighting in the back of the military. Think of Elisha's biggest miracles. They're all war miracles. He was at at battle and he caused the enemy to see the field flooded with blood. That's an Elisha miracle. His enemy forces surround him. Elisha causes them to go blind and hallucinate and he leads them to captivity. Or uh, the enemies are surrounded outside of Samaria and they're caused to be confused and attack each other and run away in confusion. Those are Elisha miracles. Elisha is a warrior. He's called the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's not something because Elijah was taken up in the chariots of, of fire, Elisha is called the chariots and horsemen because they are military terms. It'd be like calling somebody, you know, that guy is a nuclear arsenal. That guy's an RPG. (laughs) You're not saying that he has a short fuse and he flies erratically. What you're saying is that guy's a weapon. He's a military machine. That's Elisha. Elisha's on his deathbed now. He's fallen sick, verse 14, says with the illness with which he was going to die. Spoiler alert, Elisha will die here. (laughs) Joash, king of Israel, went to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, this king is broken. This cow-worshipping king who names his son Jeroboam seeks out Elisha on his deathbed and is weeping next to him. Why? Elisha has been silent for 45 years. He's up in the prophet retirement home in the hills. (laughs) but the king seeks him out. A national emergency gets the king's attention here. The Syrians are winning. His father prayed. He's not going to pray. In the back of his mind, he has filed away that Elisha is a warrior. As long as we have Elisha, we have a chance. And then he hears that Elisha is going to die. Elisha hasn't done any ministry in 45 years, but the king seeks him out and is weeping begging, crying, groping for any kind of hope in the direction of the Lord, clinging to this dying prophet. And look at what Elisha does. Elisha says, open the window eastward. The king opens it. And Elisha said, well, verse 15, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took the bow and arrows. And Elisha tells him, draw the bow, and he drew it. Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. It's sort of a tender and masculine picture all at the same time here, isn't it? This young king, probably in his 20s or early 30s, drawing a bow and arrow, aiming it out the window, and this elderly prophet on his deathbed getting out of bed and putting his frail hands around the king's hands as they pull the arrow back together, all four hands on the bow, and he shoots it, verse seventeen. Elisha said, "Shoot!" And he shot. And he said, "Yahweh's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in effect until you've made an end of them." Elisha is excited about this. The arrow shot out the window. Elisha says, "This is God's victory to you. Where that arrow goes, God will let you win." And that's the promise through the prophet. Then Elisha says, verse eighteen, "Take the arrows." And the king took him. Remember this quiver was was full. The king takes them, And Elisha says to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. In other words, shoot more arrows out the window. Not strike the ground like take them all together and hit the ground, but put them in the bow and shoot more out the window. Remember he just launched one and said that's God's victory. Now Elisha's saying shoot more arrows. Launch him out there. Let's see the Lord's victory. Keep shooting. And watch this king. He says in the middle of eighteen, he shoots three times and stops. It's this kind of diminutive language here, like almost patronizing to the old elderly prophet. Like, oh dementia's sitting setting in. He wants me to shoot arrows at the window. Okay. Think. 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 Is that what you want? Was that what Elisha wanted? He didn't want three arrows dinking out the window. I mean, do you remember how Elisha became prophet? When Elijah came up to him in the field and said, "You'll be the prophet," and Elisha said, "I got to go home," and, and Elijah's already going away. <laughs> Elisha has to grab onto Elijah, and he's like being drugged through the cornfields. <laughs> Elijah was going to go die, be taken up to heaven, and he tries to shake Elisha off his trail. Remember, he says, "Stay here," and Elisha says, "I'm not going anywhere." Not going to get rid of me. Second Kings two Elijah's zigzagging back and forth through Israel, trying to get Elisha to leave him alone. Elisha's not going to leave him alone. In fact, he follows him out of Israel. Elijah's caught up in a whirlwind. Elisha is there to see it. Elisha comes back in Israel, takes his coat off and cracks it against the Jordan River, parts the sea, so to speak, stops the river, walks back across into Israel. That's Elisha. He doesn't do anything half-hearted. He doesn't do anything flippantly. Think of the assertiveness with which he followed the Lord. And here's this king. Think. think, think. And Elisha is furious. Look at verse 19. The man of God who was angry with him. Said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria and so you made an end of it. Now you will strike them down only three times. He can't believe the intrinsic disbelief in this king. So Elisha died and they buried him. It's kind of a sad ending to his life right there. Prophesying to a king that doesn't want to believe, like people like king, I guess. The window here into this for us is you have to receive God's grace through the word of God. But if you close your heart to the word of God, you don't receive grace that way. If you don't read the word and believe it, then it's not delivering grace to you. You can say it this way. Food is for eating. Scripture is for believing. You can have a plate with a a well-rounded meal on it. And if you just look at it, it doesn't feed you. You have to actually eat it. One of my children needs to learn this lesson right now. (laughs) You have to actually consume it for it to strengthen you. The scripture is like that. You have to actually believe it for it to help you. If you don't eat your food, you go to bed hungry. If you don't read the Bible, you're spiritually starving. If you don't believe what you read there, well, what's the point? What's the point? How would you have shot the arrows out the window if you believed Elisha's promise? If you believed that the arrow is the victory for God, how would you have shot it? Now ask yourself this. Do you believe that God strengthens you through his word? Then how do you read it? Dink, dink, dink. Do you make decisions after reading the word or not? Do you dig into the word or not? Do you, oh, I'm good today. I had my quiet time. I read a couple of Proverbs this morning. I'm all set. Locked and loaded. Oh, you read a couple of Proverbs. Paul is so impressed with you. How do you read the word of God? Do you flick him out the window or do you get into it and say, feed me, Lord, I believe your word, strengthen me. That's how the word of God delivers grace, through you reading it, through you believing it. Just like food is for eating, the Bible is for believing, and there in it you find the grace of God. Well, first, God gives grace through prayer. Secondly, he gives it through his word, through the prophets. Thirdly, it comes through his power, displays of his power. Specifically here, power over death, power to resurrect the dead. Elisha is buried in some random unmarked grave, Not a lot of mourners for him in Israel. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. (laughs) That's what Moabites do. They invade Israel in the spring. They love that kind of stuff. (laughs) And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. (laughs) This is kind of a crazy scene right here. Israel, remember in the spring, they do everything like crouching. They don't want to be seen by the Moabites. Remember Gideon threshing in the the floor doesn't want to be seen. Here's the Israelites having a funeral in the spring. They don't want to keep the body around until the fall or whatever because it'll smell obviously, so they want to bury it. But they're nervous because they don't want to get busted by the Moabites and have the body stolen. So there they are in their kind of covert burial operation. And here come the Moabites anyway. The Israelites panic and chuck the body into the closest grave They don't know it's Elisha's grave. It's just the random grave there. They throw it in and they run away. The body goes in. It's it's a while ago that Elisha died. I mean, all that's left is his bones. The body goes in, lands on Elisha's bones. The body resurrects. The Moabites, I assume it doesn't say this, but I imagine the Moabites at that point run away also. (laughs) Like we're grave robbers, but we did not sign up for this. (laughs) So they're out. What is this doing in the Bible? Well, let me ask the question differently. What is this doing in the world? Why did God allow this to happen? And the answer is simple, I think, to demonstrate to you that the promise of God's grace outlives the prophets who preached it. The power of God's grace lives on even though the prophets who lived it and believed it and preached it have died. You could, if you're reading this and you're in Israel, you could be very legitimately asking yourself this question, is God still gonna show us grace even though Elisha's dead? And the answer is Yes. God's grace does not die with Elisha or to more modernize it, a friend of yours led you to faith in Christ and now that friend of yours is dead and his glory, is in glory, is the gospel still true? And the answer is yes, because the promise of the gospel outlives the life of the friend of yours who preached it. Human promises don't work that way. If you make a promise to somebody and then you die, you are released from that promise because you're dead. <laughs> God's promises outlive even death. They're supernatural, transcendent, time-defying promises. And that's the lesson here with this man's resurrection. I mean, nothing holds people in fear more than death. And this resurrection demonstrates to you that God holds the power over even death. In Matthew 27, Jesus preached that he would die and would rise from the grave. In Matthew 27, he's being crucified. While he's being crucified, the graves are open and other people rise from the grave. <laughs> That's like a promise triple fulfilled. <laughs> as a demonstration to you, that the promise of resurrection is not only for Jesus, but for others as well. For those who put their faith in Christ, they too will rise from the dead. Ezekiel describes the valley of dry bones, the valley filled with dry bones. And God makes those bones live. That's how you see the grace of the Lord in that he can cause you to resurrect after you die. A valley of bones can come back to life. Revelation 21 verse 4 describes how in the new heavens and new earth there will be no more death in glory. Elisha's bones show us that death hold sway but it does not hold sway absolutely that god has the power over life and death and that through his power he can release you from the fear of death there are worse things than losing to the syrians in war there are worse things in the trial that you're going through and believing in the power of god to raise the dead back to life is a transforming way to view your current trials they are temporal, they're ephemeral, but the resurrection is eternal. And that's what this demonstrates. So you want to see the grace of God in your life? Believe in the power of God to raise the dead back to life. In the fourth way, you see God's grace. In this chapter, you see God's grace through prayer, through prophets, through power, and finally through promise. Verse 22, Hazael, king of Syria, opposed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them. And you would expect the verse to say, because of his promise to Jehu, right? That a few generations earlier, he said Jehu's children would reign, so he's got to protect Israel to fulfill his promise to Jehu. That's what you would expect to see here. But you see something unexpected here. Yahweh is going to deliver them from the Syrians because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Isaac. And Jacob, let me give you a chronology here, that's 1,600 years before this. How old is the United States? 250 odd years? What have I told you? That some election, the last election, the next election, whatever, some bill passed Congress, whatever. Something happens politically in our country. And I say, the reason that happened is actually because in the year 400 in Rome, although Rome had fallen, Leo did this or that. That's a nonsense answer. There's no plausible way that I could say something that happened 16 years ago in some faraway place in a fallen empire is the reason for something today. And yet this is exactly what the Bible says here, that God will deliver Israel because 1600 years earlier he made a promise to Abraham. Now, what was his promise to Abraham? That Abraham would have a son, a descendant, the descendant would multiply, and would have numerous descendants, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, and through them would come the descendant, the seed, the offspring, who would be a blessing to the nations. Now, the descendant is going to be from the line of the king of Judah, not even from Israel. But the nation of Israel is important to God because it's part of his promise to Abraham that they would possess the land and that through them they'd be an ethnically distinct people that would produce the Messiah. That's the promise. And so 1,600 years later, 16 centuries later, God is going to cause Hazael to wake up in the morning and lose his battle because of that promise. In verse 24, when Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from ben the son of Hazael, the cities he'd taken from Jehoash, his father, in war. Three times, Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. And that's not just a throwaway geographical verse here. What that's telling you is that at this point, Israel is larger than it had ever been, except maybe under Solomon. The largest it will be in the book of 2 Kings is right here. In chapter 10, 11, and 12, Israel was losing land because of their cow worshiping. In chapter 13, they've grown bigger than they've ever been before to demonstrate that God will keep his promise to Abraham. How does this affect you? When you're looking for God's grace, look at his promises. See his promises and trust them because they will come to pass. And the promises, of course, point to Christ. The promise to Abraham will be one that is to the seed, singular, that the Savior will come. The promise of Israel will be that they will produce the Savior. The promise to you is that the gospel will go into all the world and you will bring it, making disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. That's the promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises come into focus when you're looking at them through the lens of Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives your life meaning. You feel like, I don't see God's grace in my life right now. I don't see it. Then pray, seek the face of the Lord. Seek him out. Don't pray like, oh, Lord, and as you fall asleep and maybe finish the prayer in the morning. No, seek him out. And you will find grace on the other side. Go to his word. Attack his word. Read his word. And you will find grace. Believe in God's power to raise the dead and let your current struggles come into focus. Put your life, your faith in the next life and not in this one and you will experience the grace of God. And believe that God is directing all of history to expand the glory of Jesus Christ, and you will experience the grace of our Lord and Savior. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God of grace. We're thankful that you were a person of grace, you were a man of grace, full of grace and truth. We're thankful that you're a savior of grace, that we don't work for our forgiveness, but you give it freely. We're thankful that you give us a life of grace, not just in this world, but in the next world, that you raise the dead to worship you. Lord, help our hearts be filled with trust and confidence, with belief, with joy. Help our hearts and our lives be filled with grace. Give us the grace to forgive others that have sinned against us because you have been so quickly, so quick to forgive us of our sins. Hear our prayers, Lord, because we come to you through Jesus. Feed our hearts because we come to you through the word of Jesus. Give us hope in our future because we believe in the resurrection of Christ that it will be ours as well. Give us confidence in your word because we know that all of your promises are yes in Christ Jesus. Lord, we trust you Make us graceful people, we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now, may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.